Good morning, friends. We're continuing our series on uh, Philippians. <clears throat> As I mentioned when we first started, this is something we'll be teaching when we're back down at uh, Hunt and Angola Prison in late February. Today we're going to take a look at part of Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, and my title is, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? So let's start with this question, who is Jesus? You know, of all the questions that might be posed to modern men and women, none is more important than that question. It's no exaggeration to say that this is the central question of history and the most important issue anyone will ever face. So just who is Jesus? Where did he come from? Why did he come and what difference does his coming make in my life? In the end, every person needs to deal with Jesus. I mean, no one can escape him. You can avoid the question or delay it or postpone it or stonewall it or pretend you didn't hear it. But sooner or later, you need to answer the question. And guess what? It's not a new question. I mean, way back in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus took his disciples on a retreat to a place called Caesarea Philippi, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they offered four responses. Uh, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the many other prophets. Now, across the centuries, the discussion has continued to this very day. I mean, visit any internet religious chat, and you're going to find a bewildering array of opinions <clears throat> regarding Jesus. Now, here are just a few of the contemporary answers that people have given to who is Jesus. They say, he's a good man, <clears throat> he's the son of God, a prophet, a Galilean rabbi, a teacher of the law, the embodiment of God's love, a reincarnate spirit master, the ultimate revolutionary, the Messiah of Israel, Savior, a first century wise man, a man just like any other man, king of kings, a misunderstood teacher, lord of the universe, a deluded religious leader, son of man, or a fabrication of the early church. And of course the debate goes on. Like several years ago, a candidate for governor of, uh, I won't mention the state, was quoted in the Washington Post as saying that Jesus was a goofball who got himself crucified. And in New York City, not long ago, a highly controversial play called Corpus Christi retold the life of Jesus in a modern setting. And the central character is a homosexual Jesus. In fact, it's even been said that in the days before Elvis Presley died, he had been reading a book called The Many Faces of Jesus. That title stands as a fitting symbol of the confusion surrounding Jesus in our time. I mean, 2,000 plus years have passed and we still wonder about this guy called Jesus. Well, that takes us back to Caesarea Philippi. After Jesus asked them, as for the opinions of others, he turned to his disciples and said, But you, who do you say that I am? See, in the end, each of us faces that same question. We can't get away with quoting the opinions of other people. You need to make up your own mind. So let's go back to the original question, just who is Jesus the Messiah? And how does your answer stack up with the Bible? That's an important second question because it's not enough just to say, I believe in Jesus. I mean, millions of people claim to believe in Jesus who don't have a clue what the Bible says about him. So which Jesus do you believe in? Well, thankfully, we, have, we don't have to wonder what the, what, the, what the Bible says. I mean, our text contains a remarkably clear answer to the question of who is Jesus. These six verses comprise a short course in Christology. In fact, nearly all of the truth about Jesus is found in these verses. His eternal preexistence as God, his voluntary taking on of human flesh, his coming to the earth as a servant, 
his humiliating death on the cross and his exaltation in heaven. In fact, some theologians call this passage the great parabola because it reveals the entire career of Jesus. It begins in heaven in verse 6, tells of his descent to the earth in verses 7 and 8, concludes with his triumphant return to heaven in verses 9 to 11. So in these verses you have the eternal Christ, Christ in heaven, that's dignity. You've got the earthly Christ, that's Christ on earth, that's humility. And then you've got the exalted Christ, Christ in heavenly glory. Let's go and take a look at this passage. We're going to look at some key phrases Paul uses to uh, describe um, who Jesus was and what he did. First of all, what he was. Verse 6 says, Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now Paul begins by stressing the eternal preexistence of Jesus as God. And before Jesus came to earth, he existed as God in heaven. It's Paul's version of John chapter 1, verse 1. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The phrase, being in the form of God, is nothing less than a direct assertion of deity. In Greek philosophy, the word translated form means the real essence of a thing. And in this context, it means that Jesus possessed the specific character of God. Whatever it is that makes God God, Jesus possessed the same essence. So whatever you say about God, you can also say about Jesus. He was all that God is and possessed all that God had. He was 100% God and nothing less. God's omnipotence, his, his almighty power was his. God's sovereignty was his. God's holiness was his. His eternity was his. God's wisdom was his. And God's justice was his. He was truly equal with God, which makes the next statement even more remarkable. It says he did not regard his position as God as something to be grasped. I mean, he didn't try to hold on to his glory, but willingly laid it aside. He did not assert his rights, although he had the right to claim his rights. This kind of forms the foundation for everything else Paul was going to say about him. It also tells us what Jesus was thinking before he was born in Bethlehem. I mean, there was no compulsion, no argument, no claiming his position, no pleading with the Father to send someone else. He voluntarily traveled a distance between heaven and the bloody cross. He did it willingly, gladly, and without hesitation. Here's my second point, what he became. Verses 7 and 8. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of his servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Well, theologians call this the incarnation, God coming to the earth in human flesh. And four phrases tell us how it happened. First, Jesus made himself nothing. Now, some Bible translations say he emptied himself. Now, in contemporary terms, the eternal Son of God, I guess you could say, became a nobody. See, when Jesus came to earth, he laid aside his divine assignment. I mean, imagine a general taking off his uniform and dressing as a man on the street. I mean, you wouldn't know the difference. Is he still a general? Yeah. Is he in uniform? No. I mean, Jesus came wearing the uniform of a common man while bearing within him the high rank of Almighty God. And second, he took the very nature of a servant. Uh, That is, he entered humanity at the lowest level, a humble slave. And notice, again, that that word form, he didn't merely appear as a servant. He took on himself all that a servant is and does. He didn't stop being God when he became a servant. He put on servanthood without 
putting off God. He laid aside his outward glory without laying aside his deity. And third, he appeared in human likeness. That he became a man fully and truly without ceasing to be God. The word likeness means that to all outward appearances, he was merely a man. But in reality, he was way much more than a man. He was God in human flesh. And fourth, he was found in appearance as a man. Now, if you and I had seen him in the first century, we wouldn't have said, well, there goes the Son of God. He didn't look any different from anyone else. He was a man, but the rest of his identity was hidden from view. So if you say he's the ideal man, you're right. If you say he's more only the ideal man, you're wrong. If you say he's the supreme servant, you're right. But if you say that he's, on, he's the only the uh, only the supreme servant, you're wrong. Now, years ago, Josh McDowell wrote a, a book. Maybe some of you have read. It's called More Than a Carpenter, and I kind of like that title because it sums up a huge spiritual truth. Jesus is always more than. He's more than a teacher, more than a healer, more than a miracle worker, more than a rabbi, more than Mary's son, more than a man. He's God in human flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He was and is the God-man. He was as much God as God is. He was as much man as man is. Now here, let's take a look at the third part here, what he chose. Verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, I think we've forgotten what crucifixion was like in the first century. It was a punishment so barbaric that the Romans reserved it only for the worst of the worst. No Roman citizen could be crucified except on direct order of the emperor. To the Jews, it was the worst possible fate. In fact, if you look back at Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, it pronounced a curse upon anyone who's hung on a tree. You can also check out Galatians 3.13. Verse 8 tells us the depth of Jesus' humiliation. He came from the top and went to the bottom rung of the ladder. No one was ever higher. No one will ever go lower than he did. I mean, death on a cross is, I think, kind of hard for us to understand. We've kind of sanitized the cross and domesticated it. We gold-plate it. We wear it around our necks. We put it in earrings on stationery. We hang rather ornate crosses in our, in our churches. and We build churches in the shape of a cross. And all of this would have been unthinkable in the first century. I mean, so terrible was a crucifixion that the word was not even spoken in polite company. If we want a modern counterpart, we would hang a picture of a, uh, I don't know what, a gas chamber at Auschwitz in front of our, our, our church or put a noose there or an electric chair with a man dying in agony, his face covered and smoke coming from his head. I mean, the very thought of that sickens us, but that's what the cross meant for Jesus. Now, why did he do that? Why did he shed his blood on the cross? A few years back, as part of my preparation to minister in Nigeria, I remember having to take yellow fever shots. And we were told that at the border, the Nigerian immigration officials in Lagos would check to make sure we've been inoculated against yellow fever because people still die of that terrible disease. I didn't know much about it, but I I looked it up and I kind of learned, I found out where the vaccine comes from. It's way back in, in the 1920s where uh, a West African native came down with the yellow fever, but unlike other people, he didn't die. Uh, in fact, his system had conquered the disease, and his blood contained the antibodies which the doctors used to develop a successful vaccine. Now, that vaccine has saved the lives of untold I don't know, thousands of people around the world. 
but each dose of that vaccine can be traced back to that one man's original blood sample. Did you get that? One man's blood saved the lives of millions of people. Now, in a mysterious way, we can't understand, that's exactly what the blood of Jesus did for us. His blood saves the lives of untold millions, billions of people. His blood is the perfect vaccine against the disease called sin. In 1 John 1, verse 7, it says, The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Well, let's take a look at the fourth part here, what he gained. Verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, here is the final stage in the career of the Son of God. Having returned to heaven in triumph, God highly exalted him. In other words, it means God gave him back all that he relinquished when he left heaven to come to earth. In this case, it means that he gained something he didn't have before. He gained something because he came back to heaven with something he didn't have before, and that was his humanity. He left the Son of God and returned the Son of God and the Son of Man. So we now have a a man in Jesus, if you will, Jesus, who is our advocate and friend. Verse 9 also tells us that God gave him the name that is above every name. I mean, what did God give him that he didn't have before? Well, he couldn't give him supreme glory. He already had that. He couldn't give him deity. He already had that. But there's one thing he didn't have that he has now by virtue of his triumphant return to heaven. God has ordained that eventually he will be universally recognized as the Lord of heaven and earth. I mean, many people didn't recognize him when he walked on the earth. People today still don't know who he is. But the day is coming when all of that will change. When that day finally arrives, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think we should understand this as not merely figurative, but as sober and literal reality. All creation will physically bow down before the Son of God and acknowledge his Lordship. And note how universal this will be. It includes all creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That would include angels and saints in heaven, all those living on the earth, the dead, the demons, Satan himself under the earth. No one is going to be left out. All will be included in the universal declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, bowing the knee means submission to him as Lord. Confessing with the tongue means that there is no other Lord but Jesus. So friends, fix this thought clearly in your mind. Jesus will have the last word. He will be vindicated before the entire universe. Even his enemies will bow down. See, in the end, no opposition against him will stand. This this is not universal salvation, but it's universal confession. Not all will be saved, but all will confess that Jesus is Lord. So, here's your choice. You can confess him now with joy as your Lord and Savior, or you will someday confess him as Lord in shame and terror. So, friends, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That includes your knees, your tongue. So will it be in love and adoration? Will it be in abject terror moments before you're cast into the eternal pit? Now, Jesus said in Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all you who weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Friends, he's your Savior. He loves you. He invites you to come to him. He gave himself for you. Scripture says today could be the day of your salvation, but tomorrow could be the day of judgment. Let me summarize what this passage tells us about Jesus. 
It tells us what he was. He was fully and completely God. It tells us what he became, a man while retaining his deity. What he chose to die a humiliating death on the cross. What he gained, the highest place, the greatest name, universal honor. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus we worship today. This is the Jesus we call Savior and Lord. This is the true Christ of the Christian faith. So, until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.